Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the late 19th century, just about everyone passed their time playing cards. But in the 1890s, word started to spread about a fancy new form of whist, one enjoyed only by the richest of the rich. It was called bridge. Soon, bridge games could be found in just about every mansion, expensive brownstone, and high-end club throughout the United States. And its popularity only grew as the years went on. Unlike most games of chance, bridge was considered proper enough to be played by gentlemen and ladies. Plus, it felt exclusive. Being a part of a bridge club was considered a status symbol, like being a member of a country club. Being good at bridge seemed like a necessary skill for any social climber, and some people even made their living playing the card game. But no one did it better than Joseph Bowne Elwell. In the early 20th century, Joseph was the king of bridge. He taught the game to the rich and famous, and soon became rich and famous himself. He used his newly found fortune to buy extravagant homes, luxurious cars, yachts, and racehorses. Joseph was a man of many vices, but his biggest vice of all was women, especially married ones. Many of the ladies he tutored in bridge somehow wound up in his bed. Joseph's adultery was dangerous in a wealthy society where honor meant everything. Joseph Bowne Elwell was used to taking risks. But if you play your life like a game, at some point, you're bound to lose. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the mysterious murder of Joseph Bowne Elwell, the bridge king of New York City. This week, we'll examine how Joseph climbed the ranks of society thanks to a card game. Next week, we'll cover how the stylish playboy was killed and America's fascination with the mystery of his death. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Oh, 
going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Before Joseph Bowne Elwell became the world's most prominent bridge player, he had a humble lower middle class childhood in the small town of Cranford, New Jersey. Joseph was born on February 24, 1873, to his father, Joseph Elwell Sr., and his mother, Jenny. Joseph Sr. was a traveling salesman whose work often took him far away from home. Jenny did most of the raising of their son and taught the young boy to be a gentleman. Jenny had grand visions for her firstborn and wanted to make sure Joseph knew proper etiquette when he eventually became successful and rich. When the young boy was six years old, the family moved across the Hudson River into the Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood of Brooklyn. Life in New York City was a huge change for Joseph. The boy was enamored with the hustle and bustle of their new middle-class immigrant community. But he got his first glimpse of high society when he ventured into Manhattan. Joseph fell in love with the glamour and luxury and hoped that one day he could be a part of the upper class. Joseph's dream took a step closer to reality when a wealthy relative agreed to pay for his schooling, enabling him to get a top-notch education. In 1886, 13-year-old Joseph was sent to Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. The boarding school was the oldest in the United States and served as a prep school for Yale University. Phillips Academy was strict in its requirements, since many of the school's students were the offspring of wealthy, well-heeled parents. Boys must possess sufficient maturity for the responsibilities of school life here. The school is not a good one for boys who are idle, wayward, or averse to study. There isn't a lot of information about Joseph's time at Phillips, but according to rumors, he didn't quite fit the mold. Instead of studying, he spent most of his time playing cards. And in 1889, he dropped out of the school entirely before finishing his senior year. Back in Brooklyn, Joseph worked as an assistant to his father and later as an insurance broker. But the 16-year-old quickly grew bored. A year or so later, he convinced his local church to start a young men's club. Joseph had no way of knowing that this decision would change his life forever. Joseph assembled a group of young men who were also looking for a social outlet. While the focus of the club was religion, the men often found themselves sitting around playing cards. Ah, you win again, Joseph. I do? Don't act so innocent. Are you trying to hustle us? (laughs) Not at all. This can't actually be your first time playing. Beginner's luck, I suppose. How about another round? Joseph quickly proved himself to be a master at a card game called Whist. He even earned himself the nickname the Wizard of Whist. Word quickly spread of Joseph's abilities, and he became a favored guest at many card parties across Brooklyn. Joseph became so caught up with card playing that he abandoned the young men's club entirely. In 1894, he joined the Irving Republican Club, 
but his membership had nothing to do with politics. He only signed up because he heard the club played a new, trendy version of whist called Bridge Whist, or Bridge for short. One big difference between whist and bridge was that bridge allowed for betting. As soon as Joseph got a knack for the new game, he started placing bets. Unlike other gambling games like poker, bridge was considered proper and gentlemanly. The game exploded throughout the 1890s, and soon every forward-thinking member of the upper crust wanted to learn how to play. Joseph was more than willing to play these rich newcomers and take their money. But even though he almost always won, the other players were happy to keep inviting him to their table. Watching Joseph Elwell play bridge was a learning opportunity. It wasn't long before Joseph started tutoring. Most bridge instructors at the time were older women, so Joseph, an attractive younger man, stood out. Young women in particular sought him out as a teacher. Joseph quickly became known as something of a Casanova, flitting from one woman to the next. But in 1899, when Joseph was 26, he met a 23-year-old divorcee named Helen Derby at a party, and she stopped him in his tracks. But the feeling wasn't mutual at first. Do you mind if I take a seat here? Please. I wouldn't have it any other way. Shall I deal you in for a round? A round of what? (laughs) Bridge, of course. I never played it in my life. Oh, then you're here looking for a tutor, I assume. My reputation must precede me. No, I know nothing about you. Normally, a gentleman would introduce himself by now. Even though their relationship got off to a rocky start, Helen and Joseph couldn't seem to avoid one another. The two bumped into each other nearly every weekend at friends' parties. Over the course of several months, a romance bloomed. Helen was from an upper-class family, which appealed to the social climber in Joseph. Joseph, meanwhile, didn't mind that Helen was divorced, which was looked down upon at the time. On May 26, 1900, the couple got married in a small ceremony. Within hours of the wedding, Helen and Joseph moved into a cozy apartment in Brooklyn Heights. The first order of business for the new bride was to learn the game of bridge. Helen attended all of Joseph's bridge tournaments, sitting in the corner, observing. After, she would quiz Joseph on the ins and outs of the game. So let's say a two of spades is played. Any other spade would beat that card. But if you don't have a spade, you can play any card. Exactly. But a card in a different suit can never win the trick. Unless that card is in the trump suit, right? Correct. Sweetheart, you're a quick study. Maybe I'll be able to beat you one day. (laughs) Maybe. Once Helen learned to play bridge almost as well as her husband, she suggested they travel to Newport, Rhode Island for the summer. Newport was where rich New Yorkers went to relax, and Helen knew that the wealthy vacationers would be looking for bridge tutors. She also understood that rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous, even just as a teacher, would raise the Elwell's social standing. In July of 1900, Helen and Joseph took the train up to Newport. Once they settled in, Helen used her connections to get invites to the summer homes of wealthy families. Over light refreshments, she would subtly bring up that her husband was an expert bridge player. 
I'm sure you know bridge is all the rage in the city. My dear husband is known to be one of the best players in town. It's quite embarrassing, but I'm still awful at that game. I can't seem to wrap my mind around it. It seems simple, but it can be quite complex. Luckily, Joseph is a great teacher. I don't suppose your husband would be willing to tutor me. Oh, sorry. His schedule is quite tight, I'm afraid. He is much in demand. Well, I, I can pay double his normal fee, if that would entice him. Soon, word spread through Newport's high society that Joseph was an excellent tutor. And that August, an envelope addressed to Helen appeared at the Elwell house. You won't believe this, Joseph. What is it? Your services are wanted at Marble House. Isn't my calendar booked? You don't understand. That's the Vanderbilt summer home. William Vanderbilt wants you to tutor him and his two sons. The Vanderbilts? The Vanderbilts were one of the wealthiest and most famous families in America at the time. An invitation from them was like a golden ticket into high society. A few days later, Joseph put on his finest suit and walked to Marble House for a tutoring session with the Vanderbilt men. Joseph was overwhelmed by the grand summer home, built of marble from all over the world. But Joseph's focus returned the minute he sat down at the bridge table. William Vanderbilt's younger son, Harold, fell in love with the game almost immediately. He asked to have daily bridge lessons from Joseph, and Joseph was happy to oblige. The Elwells' association with the Vanderbilts paid off almost immediately. Soon, everyone wanted to take bridge lessons from the man who taught the richest family in the country. During the day, Joseph made good money tutoring the rich and famous. And at night, Joseph made even better money playing bridge at exclusive social clubs. He consistently won large sums of cash at bridge tournaments. But the Elwells' magnificent summer couldn't last forever... As fall approached, Newport's elite vacationers headed back to New York City. In September, Helen and Joseph also made the trip back home, but they were no longer satisfied with middle-class Brooklyn. The pair wanted to live in Manhattan so they could continue to rub shoulders with the city's high society. They immediately found a place in the ritzy neighborhood of Gramercy Park, and Joseph's tutoring business only grew. To Helen, it seemed like everything was working out perfectly. But Helen didn't know that Joseph had started having secret affairs with several of his female students, or that her husband's philandering ways would soon cost him their marriage and possibly his life. Coming up, we'll explore Joseph's growing success and his numerous affairs. The CIA... They're the first line of defense for the United States, analyzing intelligence to thwart any possible threats and keep us safe. Some of their involvements are made public, and others aren't. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast, and in honor of America's birthday, we're uncovering the cases you were never supposed to know about in the new series, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. From international assassination plots and mind control experiments to catastrophic cover-ups and secret societies fit for film, sift through the agency's most questioned and controversial affairs. 
Each week, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition exposes the covert operations intended to protect us from conflicts, but end up creating conspiracies. Where does the truth lie? Where do the lies end? And how much do we really want to know? Follow the new Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And now, back to our story. In April of 1902, the instructional book Elwell on Bridge became an instant bestseller. Although the manual was supposedly written by 29-year-old bridge master Joseph Elwell, it was actually written by his wife, Helen. Helen was more educated than her husband, and besides, Joseph did not want to take any time away from playing cards to write about how to play cards. So Helen had taken it upon herself to write the book in their home in Manhattan while Joseph socialized. In many ways, Helen was Joseph's secret weapon. Not only had she introduced Joseph to many powerful friends, she helped promote him nationwide with the book's publication. The success of the manuals brought Joseph a series of newspaper articles on bridge etiquette in the Evening Telegram. Then in 1904, Joseph had two more books published, named Bridge Tournament Hands and Advanced Bridge. They were also reportedly ghostwritten by Helen. Joseph also somehow found the time to help establish Manhattan's Studio Club, The Studio Club was an exclusive high-stakes bridge club whose clientele were all millionaires, with the exception of Joseph himself. Uh, This is my last round, fellas. Joseph, you've got to let us win back some of that bank. The sun set and rose while we sat at this table. My wife will kill me if I stay any longer. You always leave when you're winning. I would stay if I could. At least tell us how much you got from us. That hardly seems proper. Come on, Joseph. You can drop the gentleman act in here. Last I counted, it was 55,000. Unsurprisingly, the more Joseph earned, the more luxurious the Elwell's lifestyle became. The couple vacationed in far-flung locales like Mexico, England, France, and Germany. But the pair always returned to Newport, Rhode Island for the summer, where they spent time with the Vanderbilts. And in August of 1904, Helen gave birth to a baby boy who she named Richard Derby Elwell. From the outside, Joseph and Helen seemed like a perfect couple. 
But the truth was, their relationship was rapidly deteriorating. Helen continued to see less and less of her husband, and she had trouble ignoring the salacious rumors about Joseph's adultery that seemed to follow him everywhere. In fact, around the time of their son's birth, Joseph had gotten into a nearly deadly scuffle with a mysterious woman during a trip to Louisville, Kentucky. Here's your car, sir. Thank you for staying with us. Thank you. Joseph! Joseph, where do you think you're going? Can you take me to the train station, please? You can't leave! Drive! Now! According to rumors, the angry woman with the gun was Joseph's former lover. He claimed to have no idea who she was, even though she certainly seemed to know him. Helen grew increasingly bitter of her husband's absence and alleged adultery. She later explained Joseph's behavior at the time like this. It was a common thing for him to come home at six o'clock in the morning, or even stay out for a few nights without informing me previously. That he went out with other women, I am quite sure. By 1909, Helen was done pretending to love Joseph. It was now a marriage of convenience. Nevertheless, they could act like loving spouses when necessary. When Joseph was invited to teach bridge to England's King Edward VII, Helen went with him. The entire Elwell family traveled to London and stayed at the finest hotel the city had to offer. The tutoring sessions were a royal secret, but Joseph reportedly gave the king at least five days' worth of lessons. When they returned to New York, Joseph went right back to his womanizing ways. But in 1911, he got a taste of his own medicine when he began to suspect that Helen was sleeping with her male bridge partner, Charles Whaley. Joseph, according to some reports, immediately called Charles, cursing and screaming. Charles simply hung up. Infuriated, Joseph wrote an angry letter to the man and demanded a duel. Only men less than dogs would dare to besmirch a man's honor by sleeping with a married woman. The least a man can do is to confront the husband face to face. I can be found at McCormick Brothers stockbroker's office, if you dare. Charles, the more dignified of the two, penned a strongly worded letter in return. Dear Sir, your letter requires no answer other than to say it is both untruthful and impertinent. Your suggestion of McCormick Brothers appears to me that you would like to meet where you can hide behind your friends' backs. I will be pleased to meet you at any time at any neutral place. I will not discuss any matter over the phone with you. Vitriol or abuse over the phone is simply the act of a coward. Ultimately, Joseph never followed through on his threats. He was too busy with affairs of his own. Helen and Joseph began sleeping in separate bedrooms and rarely saw each other. Any love that had existed between the couple had completely disintegrated. On January 20th, 1916, 42-year-old Joseph legally separated from his 39-year-old wife. Joseph moved to a three-story brownstone a few blocks away, taking most of the art and valuables the couple had collected together. As part of the separation, Helen would receive $200 a month in alimony. Considering Helen's role in making Joseph a success, she was angry at the relatively small allowance. Why don't we just get a divorce then, if you think so lowly of me? I think that would be unwise for me. You're a great help to me. I barely even talk to you these days. 
Oh, but you help me nonetheless. Now I see what this is about. If you stay married to me, all those girls you see can't sue you for breach of promise. They can't claim you promised to marry them, is that it? Ugh, you really are horrible. A so-called breach of promise was a serious concern of Joseph's. At the time, women could sue men who broke off engagements. The damages were increased if premarital sex was involved. If Joseph stayed married, he could keep having affairs, and none of his mistresses could claim they believed he was actually going to marry them. So Joseph and Helen technically stayed married, and Joseph continued to sleep around. In 1919, he found himself caught in the middle of a Manhattan love triangle. The most frequent visitor at his brownstone was his wealthy friend, Walter Lewison. Walter often brought along his wife, Selma, and his sister-in-law, Viola Krauss, to Joseph's home. Viola was 18 years younger than Joseph, but she caught his eye nonetheless. Viola had recently separated from her husband and enjoyed Joseph's attention. Miss Viola, can I get you another drink? I'd have another, but I wouldn't want you to think I'm that kind of lady. <laughs> you needn't act so innocent with me. I know what it's like to be separated from a spouse. <sighs> it can get lonely. A girl like you should never be lonely. As beautiful as Viola was, Joseph's attention was quick to stray. In the fall of 1919, his friend Walter is said to have developed a crush on a dancing vaudeville star, Leonora Hughes, and soon, so did Joseph. Walter became obsessed and possessive with Leonora, but Joseph didn't care. He continued to flirt openly with the dancing star. And when Joseph wasn't sleeping around, he was spending money. By this point, his new home was full of jade vases, sterling silver, leather-bound books, and exquisite antique furniture. Hidden in a storage room was an original Rembrandt oil painting that Joseph had spent a fortune on. When burglars broke into the apartment on December 4, 1919, they were overwhelmed by the options. Luckily for Joseph, nosy neighbors noticed the group of men and called the police. The cops arrived before the thieves even had a chance to pocket some jewelry. Joseph was shaken by the near theft. He had not had his art and valuables insured, so the robbery would have been a massive loss. Joseph immediately replaced all of his locks. He kept one copy of the keys and gave another set to his part-time housekeeper, Marie Larson. Whether any more sets of keys were made beyond those two remains an important mystery, because in a few months, another intruder would enter Joseph's apartment, but this time they weren't looking to steal. They were there to kill. Up next, we'll examine the events leading up to Joseph Elwell's untimely death. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. 
So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. In spring of 1920, 47-year-old Joseph Elwell still cut a striking figure. He appeared to have a full head of sandy blonde hair, straight white teeth, and a slim silhouette. Even though he had reached middle age, he showed no signs of slowing down, especially when it came to women. Joseph spent the past winter in Palm Beach, Florida, playing bridge and sleeping around with married ladies. But his flings rarely lasted. It seemed like whenever Joseph could feel a woman becoming too attached, he would break it off immediately. Joseph's chauffeur overheard one such breakup in his garage. You don't understand. I can't see you anymore. It isn't safe. Safe for me or safe for you? Both of us. Your husband knows about us. He's threatened me. My husband is adult. There's absolutely no chance he suspects. He's sent me letters. He knows. Where are these letters, then? Well, uh, I destroyed them. I don't leave those kinds of things lying around for prying eyes. You're a liar! What did I ever see in you? Although Joseph had several affairs, he kept the names and identities of those women incredibly secret. Not even his chauffeur or his housekeeper knew who the ladies were. Joseph returned to Manhattan that June and quickly fell back into Walter Lewison's social circle. He traveled to the Lewison's country home in New Jersey to play golf with Viola and to play bridge with Walter and his wife. But Joseph had no idea how close to death he really was. One day, Joseph's chauffeur, Edwin, was taking a sharp turn when a wheel from Joseph's car came loose. The wheel shot off the axle and the vehicle careened off the road. The car slammed into a ditch and was almost totaled. Luckily, both Edwin and Joseph were unharmed, but the accident was suspicious. The car was recently inspected and the wheels were fine. It had been locked in Walter's garage ever since. The morning of June 10th, 1920 started like many others. When Joseph's housekeeper, Marie Larson, arrived at his brownstone, she found the man in the reception room on a tall, upright armchair. He was dressed in his pajamas, his hair perfectly coiffed, reading his mail. After saying hello, Marie left to prepare Joseph's breakfast. Later that day, Joseph went to the Belmont Park horse track. While eating his lunch at the club, Joseph bumped into a former business associate named William Pendleton, who was also there that afternoon. In the evening, Joseph returned to Manhattan. Marie noted that Joseph seemed restless, but she wrote it off as the summer heat. Despite the warm weather, Joseph pulled on a tuxedo jacket and top hat and took a cab to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel for dinner. Joseph was there to meet Walter and Selma Lewison and Viola Krauss, who was celebrating her recent divorce. 
Coincidentally, Viola's ex-husband, Victor von Schlegel, was also at the Ritz-Carlton that night. Victor had brought along a woman in a black chiffon dress as his date. Viola was not pleased to see them. Viola, isn't this funny? Even though by law we are no longer together, you and I seem drawn together like magnets. Very funny, Victor. Well, I didn't mean to spoil your celebration. We'll be going. Aren't you going to introduce this young lady? No, I don't think I will, actually. Good night, Viola. Viola was shaken by the interaction, but she tried to put on a happy face for the rest of the party. Viola danced with Joseph for several songs, but the couple kept bumping into her ex-husband on the dance floor. Viola was in a bad mood for the rest of the evening. Once dinner was served, Viola whispered angrily at Joseph while they ate. You said once I was free and loose you'd get a divorce yourself. Why don't we discuss this at a different time? You always push off these types of conversations. I'm trying to enjoy dinner. Let's just have fun tonight. You always want fun, never anything serious. Viola. Trying to find a way to ease the tension, Joseph suggested that the group move to the aerial gardens above the new Amsterdam theater. The group arrived just in time to take in the 11.30 showing of Ziegfeld's Midnight Frolic. Despite the entertainment, Viola's mood did not improve much. She still seemed very upset with Joseph. When the group left the New Amsterdam at 1.30 in the morning, Joseph stayed behind. Accounts of Joseph's whereabouts differ wildly after this point. One person said they saw Joseph in a bar brawl in the early hours of June 11th. Another claimed he was in Times Square with several scantily clad women. Yet another said Joseph had spent the night in an illegal gambling den. None of these supposed sightings were anywhere near each other. The most likely account of Joseph's whereabouts came from a taxi driver who said he picked up Joseph outside the theater at around 2 a.m. and dropped him off at his apartment. If this version of events is true, that cab driver was one of the last people to see Joseph Elwell alive. Marie Larson was late for work on June 11th. She was supposed to arrive at Joseph's apartment at 8.30, but didn't reach the front door until 8.35. Marie was not too worried, however, because Joseph almost always slept late. Marie unlocked the front entry and nearly stumbled over several milk canisters that had been left in the doorway. She found it strange that the milkman had been able to leave them inside since the front doors were locked. Marie then unlocked the interior doors. When she walked down the hall, she was startled to see a strange man sitting in the drawing room's chair. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. Excuse me. The man was bald with only three teeth in his mouth. His pale skin looked sickly. Once the surprise wore off, Marie noticed that he was wearing Joseph's silk pajamas. Taking a step closer... Marie realized that the man was none other than Joseph himself. Marie had never seen Joseph without his toupee and dentures. The sight was jarring. But as Marie stepped further into the room, she discovered something even more grisly. Mr. Elwell, is that you? Uh, uh, Mr. Elwell? Oh, oh no! Help! 
Joseph Elwell had been shot through his skull. His forehead was pouring blood, and somehow he was still breathing. Marie stumbled out of the brownstone and raced to get help. She was the first of many to wonder who shot Joseph Bowne Elwell and why. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Joseph Bowne Elwell. For more information on Joseph Elwell, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Slaying of Joseph Bowne Elwell by Jonathan Goodman extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Matt Hartman, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth and River Donahay. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Brian Kim, Drew Lawn, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast. Every Thursday on Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition, we're uncovering secrets hidden deep within the archives of the Central Intelligence Agency to bring you a special collection of episodes from shows across our network. Follow the new Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.